Happy New Year, everybody. Good to see you. Do I look the same as I looked last year? <clears throat> if you will, uh, hopefully you got a bulletin. Will you open it up just for a moment? If you're a guest with us, I see some new faces out there. We'd love for you to take just a moment to fill out that card you see in there. There's some information. There's a spot for you to write a, a prayer request, and that's not just for guests. If anyone has something we need to be praying over, after the service is over today, as you leave, you'll see the Connection Center. There'll be a box, and you can drop that in. We would love to have a little information about you and ways we can pray for you. Um, it's the beginning of the year, and for some people, they're making new commitments to God, or maybe people haven't been connected to the church in a long time and looking for a local church to get involved in and connect to, and we would love to talk to you more about that. Uh, for those of you who have had a new arrival over the past year, maybe through a baby, that was born into your family through adoption, through foster care. Two weeks from today, on January 17th, we're going to have our new arrival uh, blessing day. Uh, so we need you to contact either Wayne Ray, Brian Burwell, contact the church office. We would love to have a record of you. We would love for you to participate uh, in that day. If you open up to the middle of your bulletin, you'll also see this on the screen. There's a few things I want you to be aware of. If you're a guest today, there is a guest luncheon that is after our second service. So uh, you may go home and come back. You may just hang around for a little while, but around 1230, follow the smell in this church, and there's some great food that awaits you. Uh, next Sunday, January 10th, our times are changing. We're going to one service uh, for this year. So at 9 o'clock, we will meet uh, for Bible class. 1015 will be our worship service. So write that down. Set an alarm on your phone, whatever it takes. Next Sunday, we're going to meet in here at 9 o'clock. We're going to have a combined class. We're going to talk about 2016, about our vision, about our mission. We're going to talk about some of the commitments that we're laying before the church that you'll hear me talk more about uh, here in just a little while. So next Sunday at 9 o'clock, we're going to meet in here for a combined class, and then our worship will be um, at 1015. Also, you'll see it in your bulletin on January 14th. It's a Thursday night from 6 to 8. We're going to host, uh, I'm going to host a conversation on marriage enrichment. My parents are in town. My parents travel the nation doing marriage events. My mother is a marriage and family therapist. Um, they're coming into town to hang out with the boys for a few days, and I told them, while you're here, I'm going to use you. So from 6 to 8, January 14th, all you need to do is show up. Child care is provided, and we're going to hang out from 6 to 8, and I want to be tight with that schedule. One thing I want to do this year is every four to six weeks, I'm going to host a forum, I'm going to host a discussion that won't be on Sundays, it won't be on Wednesday nights, but a place where we can talk about issues we're struggling with in life and also issues that are going on in our culture. So the first one I want to host is January 14th from 6 to 8. So invite people to come, we're going to hang out in room 115, which is all the way down that hallway, so you can park back there and just make plans, make plans to be there. Um, maybe you feel the same way I do, just coming out of Christmas, especially if uh, you have children in your family. Uh, there's a story maybe you connect with. There was a dad who, it was just after Christmas, and his son was being so disobedient over and over again. So finally the dad said, go to your room. And as that kid started going to his room, the dad said, no, nah, take that back. Don't go to your room. Go to my room. And the mom came in and said, why did you send him to our room? And the dad said, have you seen all the presents he got? In his room, he has a TV. He has his own iPad, he has his own tablet, he has an Xbox, he has a PS4. That's not punishment. You send him to our room, that's going to be punishment for a little while. Have you ever felt that way? 
Like some of us, your kids or kids in your family got so many gifts, and what do we do with all of them? And then we get frustrated because I know how much money was spent on certain gifts, and my kids play with it for about 15 minutes, and then they don't touch it. And I just want to say, dude, you got to play with that for like the next three months every day if you knew how much we paid for that. But around this time of year, there's another story that I think most of us connect with, because some of you in here, maybe um, you make New Year's resolutions. You have some 2016 goals. And there's a story of the guy who had a friend who lived on a, on a farm, and as he was driving up one day, he saw the side of his barn, and on the side of his barn, there were all of these targets. So this guy had been shooting towards the side of his barn, and every target had a hit in the bullseye. And the guy went up to the dude who lived there and said, you must be a marksman. Like, how, you never miss. Everything's right in the middle. How do you do this? Teach me how to shoot. And the guy said, well, here's all you do. You shoot the barn, and then you go and you draw your target around wherever you shot. And guarantee every time you can hit the bullseye. What are you aiming for this year? And what are we aiming for? And if you were to hit every New Year's resolution that you made, or every 2016 goal, how is your character going to be developed? How is it going to make for a better world? What happens if you do meet all of them? So what are we aiming for? What are we shooting for? As a church, what, is, what are we aiming for? Where is God leading us? How are we following Him and what, and what we do? Because here's, uh, last night, man, I, I slept awful last night, yet I woke up with so much energy this morning. And this happens most Saturday nights. I'm, I just, I'm restless. I wake up a lot. I, I, but I wake up and there's energy in my bones and around 4 o'clock on Sunday, my IQ drops about 15 points. My kids are getting older and they're learning that they can take advantage of their dad at 4 o'clock or after on a Sunday. I think True is starting to teach Noah, hey, if you want dad to say yes to something, just wait until Sunday after 4, all right? Noah starts coming in. Dad, can I have True? It's birthright. Yeah, just don't make me get up off the couch, all right? Uh, uh, last night, I was so restless because throughout the whole night, I was waking up. And as I woke up, God was placing faces in this church in front of me. So every time I would wake up, I would just begin to pray. And it was just a simple prayer. I would wake up during the night and I would think, God, just more of you for me. More of you for the people you're placing in front of me right now. I started thinking of families that I know who are grieving. Families who I know who are dealing with stress of taking care of older parents uh, and just faces would come, and my prayer for you was more of God. More of God, more of God. Because I know living today, there are so many people who want the benefits of the intimacy that comes in a relationship without investing in that relationship. And when it comes to God, we want the benefits of what God has to give, sometimes without ever wanting to invest in the relationship with God. We want the gifts that God can give without investing in the relationship. We want, we want all the blessings that can flow from heaven without investing in, in that relationship, without ever wanting more of God. And there are times we want the benefits that come of the intimacy. I mean, you think about it in life. Don't you know people who want the benefits of intimacy that comes within a marriage covenant, but they want it outside of a marriage covenant? And there's this covenant that God has invited us into. And when we have these encounters with Jesus, they leave us changed and grateful and overwhelmed and hungering for more. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 this morning. Let's dive in, all right? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be in Luke 19, 1 through 10, talking about the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And, and we meet here in 1910 Sycamore View Road, so I'm excited about the next few weeks 
Here are the first three verses of Luke 19. They're on the screen. Hopefully you have a Bible in front of you. Here's how it goes. He, Jesus, entered into Jericho, and he was passing through it. And a man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, and I just I want to stop right there, all right? Because when we read this story, we start asking about who, who Zacchaeus was. He's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector, and he was very wealthy. So if you were a tax collector in the days of Jesus, the chances are you didn't have many friends, and if you're a chief tax collector, you probably didn't have any friends. Because what you could do is you could sit at a toll booth. Imagine this. Imagine if the only way you could get to the FedEx Forum, the only way is you had to go down Sam Cooper. You had to hit I-40, go under the loop, you had to take Sam Cooper. And imagine if there was a toll booth there. And it's the only way you could get there. And whoever said of that toll booth, they could say on a sign that you have to pay 75 cents, but they could actually charge you 80 because they know that the only way you can get there is through that toll booth. So often what tax collectors would do, if it was whatever kind of tax it was, whatever booth they were sitting at, there was a fee that they could make you pay because you had to go through them to get somewhere else. So they were often known as people who could cheat others, who would take advantage of others. So right there, you know Zacchaeus probably is lonely. Who knows if he has a family or not? We don't know much about him, but we know. And the reason the story is here isn't so you know more about Zacchaeus. It's who Zacchaeus was after. It's who Zacchaeus was running for. Now, Luke is the only person who tells this story. Isn't that strange? Like, such a cool story, yet Matthew, Mark, and John don't even tell the story of Zacchaeus, which tells you one thing about Matthew, Mark, and John. They did not go to VBS, right? (laughs) Apparently, only Luke did, because that's where all of us engage the story of Zacchaeus. But in Luke 19, what I want you to focus in, look at verse 3. It says Zacchaeus wanted to know who Jesus was. And maybe I'm about to read way too much into this, and maybe I'm not. But if you underline in your Bible, I want you to underline that. I want you to highlight it, maybe put a star by it, because what you read is not that Zacchaeus wanted to see what Jesus would do, it's he wanted to see who Jesus was. It's not that he even wanted to see Jesus teach, he wanted to to see who Jesus was. And maybe it wasn't about outward appearance. It was he wanted to know something about the heart of this man that he had been hearing about up to this point. We have no clue if Zacchaeus had ever seen Jesus or Jesus hadn't been through Jericho yet. So Zacchaeus has heard stories about him and surely the stories he heard were about healings. And here's a man who could raise people from the dead. Here's a man who could take just a little bit of bread and fish and could feed thousands of people, yet when it comes to Jesus coming through Jericho, Zacchaeus' desire wasn't to see what what Jesus would do or what miracle he would perform. He wanted to see the source of the miracles he had heard about. He wanted to see who this was. Uh, I have people who come to my office sometimes or they want to meet for lunch or for breakfast or over coffee. And what they say is stuff like this. These are people who've been in the church for years, if not decades. And sometimes what they say is, Josh, I'm in a place in my life where if I died today, I think I would be in heaven. Yet I don't really know what it's like to live in a relationship with God. I don't know what it's like to have this walking, breathing, thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Tell me what to do. How do we engage him in deeper ways? It's this longing for who God is. So, um, I don't know if 
any of you have ever been to the Church of the Nativity? Not the one in Bartlett, all right? Can we show the picture up on the screen? The one that's in Bethlehem. How many of you have ever been over to Bethlehem? Can I just see a show of hands? The Church of the Nativity is, um, most traditions believe that this church is at the location where Jesus was born. And this church has been there for, uh, it was first built and established uh, in the fourth century. So just a few hundred years after the birth of Jesus, this church was built. And uh, a couple of hundred years later, the church was destroyed and then was built again. So what you see on the screen has been there almost 1,500 years. And at the Church of the Nativity, the door has become smaller over the years multiple times. So can you see where the door is? Can you see where the, the door used to be? Can you see that arch on the screen behind me? So there used to be this huge door, and it's become smaller for a couple of reasons. One reason is, years ago, the people who had power, your kings and those in authority, would ride horses everywhere, and right, the bigger the horse, like the more royal you were, the more power you had. So on that horse, they would ride into places, even places of worship. So one thing is they made the, the door smaller to keep those horses from coming in. So they almost say, look, this isn't a place where the powerful can um, uh, abuse their authority. But there's another reason that door kept becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. Today, if you go there, this is known as the door of humility. And the thought is, for you to enter into worship in that place, you have to stoop to get in. You may not have to get on your knees and crawl, but you have to almost, you have to bow, you have to take a posture where you are stooping so you can get in. You have to lean down. Uh, and I think there's something so cool about this. Now, some of you are thinking, if we did that here and I had to stoop to get in, I would never get back up. If I had to crawl in, you would have to help me up. But part of the thinking is, when you come to a place, whatever you wanted to call that place, a sanctuary, a place of worship, you had to bow. The one who bowed for you, now you bow for him. It helps put things into perspective, right? Like if you're going to a place and your heart isn't in the right place, the posture you take as you enter into that place of worship is a posture of humility. It helps people understand that the pathway to victory is a pathway of submission to God. And there's something cool about this, of the posture you take when you go into a place is a posture that reminds you that no one is given a gift of complaining, though you may complain if you had to bend or stoop or kneel to get into a place. It's a posture of humility. We are surrendering to the Lord. We're entering in this, into this community where we're sitting with brothers and sisters, and all of us had to bow before the one who bowed for us, who bent a knee for us in order to worship Him. The greater clarity of Jesus becomes in your life. The greater the clarity of who Jesus is, it brings greater clarity to who you are with Him and who you are without Him. As we accept the greater clarity of who God is, of who Christ is, the more we become aware of who we are with Him and who we are without Him. At times, greater clarity of Jesus brings greater peace it brings greater sense of community. But if you read the Bible, sometimes greater clarity of who Jesus is brings division. Because greater clarity of who Jesus is, and the more Jesus surrounds himself with messed up people like Zacchaeus, there's grumbling and there's complaining. We're going to talk about this in the weeks to come, because in this story there are people who don't really get why Jesus would want to befriend someone like Zacchaeus. So they start complaining. They begin grumbling. 
Because people get rattled when God gets outside of the boxes we have tried to put him in, right? Wouldn't life be so much easier if God played by our rules? And whatever systems we've set up for life or politics or church, if God would just function within our rules and within our mindsets, maybe life would be so much better. But God doesn't stay there. He keeps moving. So there's another church I want you to see a picture of. It's a church of the Holy Sepulchre in in Jerusalem. And this is cool. This church is built at the place where many in most traditions believe this is where Jesus was raised from the dead. No, I know God values the whole world. Yet wouldn't it give you a sense of awe to think you may be standing or worshiping in the place where Jesus rose? And this church has been there for hundreds of years. And most believe it's where Jesus came out of the tomb. Yet in that church, and if you focus this a little more, there's a ladder, a wooden ladder, that's up by this window. And that ladder has been there for hundreds of years. And it has not moved. Not even an inch. And here's why. There are five different Christian groups that lay claim to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And for the last few hundred years, they have been fighting among themselves about who is the rightful owner and who can call the shots at that church. So because they can't get along, what they have done is they have handed the keys to the church because people want to go over there and see this place. They've handed the keys to a Muslim family. And every morning, it's the Muslim family that opens the door to the church and that locks the door at night. And then there's this ladder that you see by the window that for 200 years, the Christian groups were so contentious, they were fighting so much that they made an agreement that today the locals call the doctrine of the status quo. The doctrine of the status quo. And here's what it means that no one can make a change to the church of the Holy Sepulchre without the consent of all five families. So all five faith communities cannot agree on anything to do with the outside of, even when it comes to moving a ladder, they can't agree on it. So it's been there for 200 years. Is this crazy to you? And there are a couple of just ironies with this. Big ironies and sad ironies. One, that the keys to the church are given to a Muslim family, which is a church that is located in the place many believe that Jesus rose from the dead there. That sounds crazy to me. And the other irony is that many think of that place as the doctrine of the status quo, that the doctrine of the status quo would be in the place where Jesus rose from the dead which Jesus' resurrection was anything but status quo, right? I mean, it launched a movement that was anything but status quo. And what we have seen for 2,000 years is the church trying to live in a way and sometimes failing to do this in a way that we honor the power of the resurrection and we also try to live into the mission that Jesus gave us. If you look in the early church and in your Bibles and you look in the stories of Jesus as, as the, the Gospels progressed, the messier Jesus' community of friends became, the more hostile the religious groups became. The more ethnically and socially diverse the church became, the more hostile those from the outside and even from the inside became. 
And to befriend and to acknowledge and to pursue messy, broken, messed up people can sometimes cause some friction because it's hard to do this. It takes the power of God to do this. And to be people who want to be injected with the grace of God and live in a way where we're injecting others with the grace of God, there may be some grumbling and hostility, yet we kept pressing through. So we're at a location here. Did you know this church is part of churches that started in the year 1900? Twelve people started a church in 1900 at the Women's Building on Front Street. Do we have any uh, former members who were there in 1900 when it started? No, nobody's still alive in the place. Just making sure, all right? In seven years, the church grew to the point where they grew bigger than the place where they were meeting. So in 1907, there was great growth. So a building was completed and dedicated on Harbor Avenue. In 1925, they outgrew that building and they purchased a new lot on 1930 Union, which I think is where Midtown uh, Church of Christ is today. And they moved into that new facility in 1925. In 1943, there was a group of people who were blessed by the elders in that church, and they moved to 2212 Jackson Avenue, where that church would remain for almost three decades. And then in 1975, this land right here was purchased, and uh, in 1978, this facility was built there, which we have been here since 1978. This church started in this location with 150 members. Some of you were a part of that church the first day the doors were open. And you can look back through the stories of Sycamore View as we've been in this place since 1978. And sometimes it's good for me just to, to look back. In 1983, we were the first Church of Christ in Memphis to build a gym. And we took some flack for that. We were written up for it. In the 80s and maybe early 90s, you had a clown ministry here as a way to reach out to some people and touch some kids and move into hospitals and have a way to help promote something good and laughter and joyful. And I remember reading articles about you're being written up for some of that. This church has always not been afraid to take risks, and sometimes a risk didn't pan out. At one point, you had a one o'clock worship service specifically for people who worked late night shifts and for shut-ins. At one point, we moved Bible classes to Sunday nights as an attempt just to try to engage people in a different way. We're one of the first churches in Memphis that had praise teams, and this list could go on and on. We've been a church that hasn't been afraid to be adventurous and try new things to reach people. This is us. And as we move forward into the future, we want to continue to be risky and adventurous and submissive and diverse, and there's no turning back from some of these commitments. And as Jesus met Zacchaeus, he has also met us in the time of our deepest need. And here's what happens. Look at the end of Luke 19 of this story with Zacchaeus. In verse 9, here's what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Uh, Jesus speaks salvation upon the house of Zacchaeus. I want to talk about more, that more in the weeks to come. But what you see in this story is it begins with the guy who is a chief tax collector who is rich. And it ends with Jesus declaring salvation upon him. And not just declaring salvation, but reminding him, telling him, declaring to him that, hey, you are a son of Abraham. Because in this moment when we are encountered by Jesus Christ, when we have these encounters with God, He comes and He transforms your whole identity. I loved your communion thoughts earlier about who we are in God. Because it doesn't just end with Zacchaeus 
having this encounter with Jesus. It's this brand new identity. You are a son of Abraham. You are part of the bigger story of God that is unfolding and it has been for centuries and it will continue until the day of Jesus. And then in 1910, Jesus declares what his own mission statement is. He came to seek out and to save the lost. And we need both of those. It doesn't say he just came to save the lost. He came to seek out and save the lost. So the thought of Jesus being one who is moving and pressing in, he is seeking after people today with this desire to save them. The story after Zacchaeus is a story about responsibility because that's what happens when we encounter the salvation of God. We are given responsibility. And as the leadership of this church over the last six to nine months has been thinking, how are we going to call people to deeper commitment in 2016 and beyond? Let me just lay out five commitments, and you're going to hear a lot about these in the weeks to come. Here are five commitments, and the reason we even settled on five is the leaders here through prayer and through fasting and through discussion, we were thinking, okay, how can we present the gospel and live into the gospel in a way that is focused, clear, intentional, that it doesn't come across to you as the church is asking you to give 15 hours to the church every single week, but what are some realistic expectations? But all of this is couched within the context of commitment to God, commitment to Jesus, about discipleship. Because if you read the New Testament seriously, for the elders to be who the elders are, for the leaders to be who the leaders have been called to be, we are calling each other to spiritual depth and maturity and development that the status quo is not an option when it comes to living into who Jesus is. So there are five things. Write these down. You're going to talk about these in life groups and Bible classes. uh, The combined class next week is going to unpack these a little more. Number one, we're, we're inviting people. We're asking every member to make a commitment to discover. And what this means is this, this is pretty broad. We're we just asking you to make a commitment to be a church. Did you know the average church member in America will miss their church, will miss almost 17 Sundays a year? That's, that's the average person in churches today. We travel more than ever. We have family that live outside of towns and cities. So missing church is not a problem. Missing church isn't going to send you to hell. We're just asking you to make a commitment to be here. And to make a commitment to joining the adventure of following Jesus. The waters of baptism are always flowing. The heart of God is always inviting. And we want to invite members and new members to be a part of who we are here and to join in the adventure. Number two, the word connect. And when we speak connect, what we want to ask is for every person who's here at Sycamore View, we're asking you to commit to one small group environment where spiritual formation and relational building uh, is practiced. This may come through a Bible class, through a life group, through Wednesday night activities, through a discipleship group, other Bible study groups. These are not groups where you try to get a better golf score. You know, I mean, fellowship is awesome. Hanging out is great. But these need to be the small group communities that you are committed to where we are diving into the Bible together, we're wrestling with what it means to be God's people together, so a small group environment. You may choose to invest in more than one. That's fine. We won't keep you from doing that. We're just asking everyone to commit to one. Can you find one small group environment that you will connect to? Number three, serve. We're asking every person at Sycamore View to commit to one service opportunity. These come through ministry teams. You'll hear more about them in the weeks to come. 
uh, through strategic partners. We believe that we engage the heart of God through serving with God and for God. It's not an option for disciples of Jesus. So part of our spiritual development is making a commitment to service opportunities. You may choose to invest in more than one. We aren't, we're not going to stop you from doing that. We're just asking you to invest in one. The fourth thing is to give. We have some needs here at the church. We have hired ministers and given them responsibilities where they're not just about uh, promoting the status quo or living the status quo. They are invested in the mission and the vision of this church. And we have some needs. We have some needs at our facility. We have needs to hire a children's minister. But the reason we want to make a commitment to give isn't just because we have needs. It's because it's the obedient thing to do in the Bible. And let me place it before you like this. I think it is right for you to financially give to whatever body you are committing and that you are placing your spiritual health into. I think it's it's right to financially give to whatever the community is you're entrusting your spiritual health to. So we want to encourage people to have a greater discipline, a greater spiritual discipline of giving. And the fifth thing is to go. Because we could commit to discovering and to connecting in groups and the service opportunities and to giving, but go is this broad idea. I mean, Jesus says, go and you make disciples, so we want to promote healthier family systems in the church. We want, uh, we want you to learn and to be equipped of how you engage neighbors, how you engage coworkers. Uh, just how you become light. So we leave here every day, not just to cross our fingers so we come back here for the next Sunday. We leave here believing that the God who encounters us on Sunday mornings is the God who also encounters us on Monday and Tuesday. And we want us to go into the world. So those are five commitments we're laying before the church. I ask you to pray about them, pray through them. We're going to have a commitment Sunday in six weeks on February 7th. We're going to have cards that we're asking people of how are you finding ways to commit? The key word is commitment. Because can we agree that in our culture, we don't do commitment very well? It's not just a Christian problem, right? It's a cultural problem. It's not just a cultural problem. It's a Christian problem. that We just don't do commitment well. So what is the greatest challenge in your life of living a committed life to God? And with that, do you mind bowing your heads, closing your eyes? Maybe open your hands in your lap where you are just to receive from the Lord. I want to ask those who are praying this morning, will you go ahead and move into your place? And with eyes closed and heads bowed, will you just uh, think silently where you are? Will you just think, what is the... Ask God to reveal to you. What is the thing? What is it that is... What's the primary obstacle in your life keeping you from living a committed life to God? Just ask Him to reveal that to you. And will you follow up that prayer by asking God to give you the boldness to know what you need to do about it? God, as we launch into a new year together as a church family, I ask that the same power that lifted Jesus out of a grave will guide us, will be our foundation, 
will pump life through our veins. I pray, God, for my friends in this room that you give us greater vision and clarity of how we need to live each day of our lives, of how we pursue you with the reckless abandonment, how we pursue relationships, how we become a blessing to the world. Uh, God, I continue to pray as as I did last week that if there are things that need to be left in 2015, sins, hindrances, relationships, will you give us the boldness to leave them there? And will you place inside of us great joy, hope, and anticipation for what it is you're going to do this year, how you're going to reveal yourself. May this be a year for more of God and less of us. Uh, God, for this church, may we work to promote the unity and the peace and the vision that you have given us here. So I lift up all of my friends and declare the name of Jesus over them now. Amen. I was... uh, praying with my boys the other night, and my boys uh, began to pray, and there are times where they pray, and it is so superficial, but then there are times where they pray like these deep truths of God, and as we were praying, my boys said, God, with the power you give us, give us the power to destroy Satan, and how my boys prayed a few nights ago, I ask us to pray as we move into the future. God has given us the power, the divine power to demolish strongholds. And this morning, there are a few places of prayer. I see Sherry Hart, Miriam on the two sides. We have elders up front, elders in the back to receive you. Because there may be something you want to bring in before this entire church. And Tommy Collier right over here to my right is the place where you need to come if there's something. Uh, But I don't want you to think that the way prayer works is just by getting the masses. Sometimes the way God works is you just need one person to have a focused prayer time over you. And that's why we provide some of these places for blessing and for prayer. So we're going to sing two songs. So you're going to have around six minutes to move and to pray. And I ask that you take advantage of that. Don't keep yourself maybe from receiving the blessing from the Lord that you need today. Can we stand together? Let's sing these songs and please find a place for prayer. Make me more.